Have you noticed how the light shines brightest in the darkest of places? I know that we're all too familiar with with darkness. In fact, darkness has really been a predominant theme of humanity all the way to back to the very first man and woman. With the entrance of sin came death, despair, discouragement. And not only in the first man, woman, Adam and Eve, but think of the first family. We think we have dysfunctional families today, but think of that first family where you have Cain killing his brother Abel. And ever since sin entered into humanity, ever since Man decided to do life apart from God and to say no to his word and to actually disobey him. Destruction has permeated our, our world. It's the reason that we have such great inner turmoil. It explains why society has such great breakdown, because sin has entered into humanity and life just doesn't work as it was intended. And when we consider that you and I obviously made by a creator, the creator, we have marvelous design and we are designed for him that we'd find our hope, our life and our fulfillment in him. And because of sin, we live life on a horizontal level. And though we are religious by nature, we create gods in our own image. Rather worshiping the one who has given us life. And really, sin takes place everywhere. And your relationships Describes your personal inner turmoil, your restlessness. And so what we do is we try to establish an identity on our own. We try to find our identity in possessions or power or prestige. Try to find some sort of athletic accommodations that make us look good. We have created a world that is dominated by self. And here in America, the word consumer truly describes us. In every respect. And yet, in the midst of all the darkness and the fallenness of the world, where sin is running rampant, and because of sin, man has a spiritual death and he's separated from God, God has, from the very beginning, promised a Redeemer. In fact, if you'd like to know what, what is the predominant overarching theme of the Bible, what is life all about? It is about God promising and delivering a redeemer so that he may magnify the greatness of his character and at the same time bring about the redemption of his people and to take people who were once in great darkness and bring them into the glorious light of the sun. It's pretty amazing if you've ever spent time studying the Old Testament that all the way back from the entrance of sin, God makes a promise That there is a coming one who will crush the serpent's head and his dominion on this earth will eventually have an end. And there's all these promises from where he'll be born to what his life will be like, that he'll be humble and that he'll be great, that he'll fulfill the promises of scripture, that he'll be the, the coming king. He'll be the one who'll be the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant, the one who will be the forever eternal son of David, who will eternally reign All the way to the fact of how he will die and that he's going to be brutalized beyond recognition and that he will die for his own and that he will once again rise 
and all the promises of Scripture regarding the Messiah find their fulfillment in Jesus, who is said of him, he is the light who has come into the world. In fact, in John chapter 8, Jesus made this declaration. I am the light of the world. He who follows after me will not walk in the darkness, but have the light of life. Christ is the promised one and he has come. Jesus, the son of God. And he has come to this world so that all who will believe in him may enter into his light and know his love. And this has been God's plan. That those who have been redeemed by his grace, who believe that, yes, indeed, we're sinners and Christ is the one who has paid the penalty for our sin. We enter into relationship with him and we who have the life of Christ invested in our lives begin to reflect his light and his love to a lost humanity. That has always been his plan. For me, I'd have to say that I'm all too familiar with the darkness Spent a good chunk of my life completely alienated from God under this shroud of just spiritual darkness, trying to make it in this roller coaster of life out there, just trying to live kind of the all American boys life, trying to find your satisfaction in uh, social life, trying to do a respectable job in academics, hold down a part time job, trying to somehow make a name for yourself in athletics, because after all, in our culture, that is esteemed. You want to be noticed? You got to play good or run fast. Try to make some accomplishments in music and yet spiritually dead. All too familiar with that gnawing sense that something is just absolutely missing. But you know how God works? He works through his people. Those who have the life of Christ. Why they have. His light shining in their life. For me, as a high school student in Rochester, Minnesota, there were two people in particular, Noel Bjorkus, Mary Weinrich. People who truly loved God, who had entered into a saving relationship with Christ. And they loved God and so believed in his commission to go and make disciples of all the nations that they were willing to engage me with the gospel, to talk to me, to speak to me, to stir my mind to spiritual matters, to talk to me about Christ. And, you know, I'd have to say. I didn't get it, although I could see that there was something very different in their lives. It's like it says in Second Corinthians four, four, the God, the little G.O.D. of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. And I simply didn't get it. Right after high school, I moved to Oregon and find myself at the University of Oregon in Eugene, a very dark place spiritually. Wickedness just runs rampant, wild, out of control. The New Age movement finding its full thrust on campus. Gay and Lesbian Alliance, the largest funded group among all the people there on campus. And there, God had his people too. 
There were people that started reaching out to me in the department store that I worked in, trying to share the life and the love of Christ with me, inviting me to a Bible study, pointing me to Christ, living an example of what that looks like, showing me what redemption looks like coming out of a drug culture and into a life in relationship with God and respect to one of these gals. And then these two guys moved into the house that I lived in. And Doug Gardner, Frank Barada, you know why they moved into this house of 64 people that I lived in? They moved in to give witness and bear testimony of the living God, Jesus Christ, who is the light of the world. And they talked to me and they encouraged me. They, they provided me a Bible. They stirred an interest. Their life was compelling and contagious. And I wanted to know more. And I found that as I went through my freshman year at the University of Oregon, by the end of that year, I had become convinced of two things. One, I'm a great sinner. No mystery there. And Christ is a magnificent savior. And at the end of my freshman year, I told God two things he already knew. I am a great sinner. And Christ is the one and only Savior. And I placed my faith in him. And I found that the life of Christ that I saw revealed in the lives of others now was finding its place in my own heart and in my own life. I'd have to tell you that my relationship with Christ has radically transformed me. Points where I'd be almost unrecognizable to you. There's only one explanation. It is the power of the living God, the light of Christ moving in the hearts of his people. Think of your own testimony. Think of people right now who cared about you, loved you, and spoke the truth of God to you, who shared the gospel, the magnificent truth about Christ, the light of the world. You know, after all, that is his mission. The mission of Christ is to bring his light into the darkness. Who is it for you? Who are the Dugs and the Marys and the Elions and the Beckys and the Franks that came into your life to show and to share the love of Christ? You know, that is the nature of God's mission, friends, is to bring his light into darkness. And it should not surprise us. Do you know why? Because when it comes to Jesus, when he began his public ministry, that is exactly how he operated. And I'm going to invite you to open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter four. Shouldn't surprise us that this is the ministry of Christ. Jesus began his public ministry by by actually going to the place where those who were lost might see the light and the love of Christ. Now, if you remember, as we've started making our way through the gospel of Matthew, Matthew has gone with great intentionality to show us that indeed Jesus, the Messiah, is the one true living God. He is, he's made it clear with absolute certainty. In fact, remember, if we just quickly trace it through, you can start in Matthew chapter one. And that's where he shows that Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of the Abrahamic and Davidic covenant. He is the one who is promised. And they trace his divine and genuine pedigree from Abraham and show that he is the fulfillment, both the promises to Abraham 
and to David, that he would be the one who would be the eternal king that would reign forever. And then if you remember, when you move on in Matthew chapter one, you see that there's the father's supernatural intervention through the virgin birth, that Jesus is not conceived by normal human relations, but that the Holy Spirit overshadows Mary. And Jesus is conceived because Jesus, the Messiah, it was prophesied, would be born of a virgin. And indeed he was. And in fact, the angel makes this announcement in verse 21 in chapter one. He says, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. This is he who is coming. And then if you want to see just how great God's care and protection is for his son. You look in chapter two where you see the father's supernatural protection from his from King Herod and from King Herod's son, Archelaus. Why does he protect his son? Because his son, the eternal son of God, is sent on a divine mission. And furthermore, in chapter two, verse 15, you see that Jesus is the one who is called out of Egypt because it was prophesied that out of Egypt, verse 15, chapter two, I have called my son. And when Joseph and Mary flee to Egypt because of Herod's persecution, where he's going to kill all the children. When Jesus comes from Egypt, he is fulfilling the promise that was made in Hosea and he's identifying with his people. And then there is this declaration made in chapter three. This is a magnificent text in verses 16 and 17, where he says, after being baptized, Remember when Jesus goes to the Jordan River, he actually uh, goes and identifies with John the Baptist. Jesus came up immediately from the water and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the spirit of God descending as a dove and lightning lighting on him. And behold, a voice out of heaven said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. God makes a declaration to the world. And the, this, these two verses are magnificent because they show us the triune nature of God. You have Jesus, the son of God, clearly the Messiah. You have the spirit of God, the Holy Spirit of God lighting upon his shoulder. He, he's physically manifested in this way. To show that the spirit of God has come to glorify the son of God. And then you have the father speaking of his great love for his son who has humbled himself in such significant ways by entering humanity. And this is what he says. This is my beloved, my greatly, dearly loved son. Here he is. He is in your midst. And he says, I am well pleased with him. And then finally. What we saw the last time we looked at Matthew in Matthew chapter four, verses one through eleven, we see the demonstration of his deity because we see Jesus going into the wilderness where he is tempted. He is not tempted to see like, well, is it possible that Jesus would sin? No, this is a testing to show that Jesus is absolutely committed to do the will of the father and he will not forego the agony of this life or the cross. There will be no short circuiting or bypassing the agony of the cross because Christ came to fulfill all righteousness and to save those of us who are unrighteousness by redeeming us and paying the penalty for our sin. By the way, this will not be the last time we see Satan rising up and confronting Jesus. But we find in Matthew chapter four, verses one through 11, where Jesus absolutely every single time shows himself, shows himself to be true is that he is showing that he will be the conqueror over darkness. You see, that is why Christ came. 
The mission of Christ is to bring light into the darkness. And so we see in verse 12, chapter 4, Now when Jesus heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee. Okay? So Matthew, he's going to point out key events. And after the temptation of Christ by Satan, he, Matthew makes note that Jesus heard that ben, John had been taken into custody. This is John the Baptist. Josephus, the Jewish historian, writes in Antiquities that, that Herod, actually, Herod Antipas actually has John the Baptist arrested because he is fearful that John the Baptist will start some sort of political insurrection. He is calling people to repent. He is focusing people upon God. There is this messianic fervor that is running throughout Israel. And the last thing you need is somebody who is calling the world, whether you be Jew or Gentile, whether you be a holy person or you be some sort of Roman soldier. He is calling people to repentance and believe in the one true God. In fact, his message is this. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Herod Antipas says, I will have no more of this. There is a political reason, but there is also a moral reason why Herod Antipas has John the Baptist arrested. See, we've learned a little bit about Herod's family. We talked about Herod the Great and how wicked this man was and how he'd kill his wives and his favorite kids. He was totally paranoid. That's how paranoid people act. They kill the people in their life. Well, Herod's sons had inherited the same disease. Herod Antipas, pretty wicked guy, he did something that... I mean, I mean, that's bad. He actually marries his niece. Okay. Uh, her name was Herodias. Okay. They kind of like that Herod word in there. So we got a gal. Same her Herodias. Okay. But Herodias was actually married to his brother, Philip. And John the Baptist said, that is wrong. A sin. This is going to be a major theme when you come to Matthew chapter 14, where you see all these details come into play. And so John the Baptist calling anyone who will listen, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The king is coming and he confronts sin. You know, like sidestep it or like, well, Herod, that's not so good. It doesn't matter. He is God's man. Hence, he's not fearful of any man, even Herod Antipas. And he says, what you've done is blatantly sinful and wrong. Well, that's it. He has him incarcerated. When Jesus, verse 12, heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. Now, you might be thinking like, oh, Jesus hears that Herod Antipas is turning up the heat. And so he's fleeing and he's going to take cover. Actually, the opposite. Is taking place. Herod Antipas's area that he oversees is what you see on this map here. He oversees all the Galilean region as well as Perea. And Jesus goes to Nazareth, his hometown. We find out in Luke's account that he's actually rejected by his own people, so much so that they actually want to kill him. And he sets up home base in Capernaum, which is right on the Sea of Galilee, right there on that northern section there. And what he does is Jesus sets up his base of operations in the heart of Herod Antipas's area that he's ruling and he's reigning in. 
And furthermore, Capernaum is on a major thoroughfare called the Way of the Sea, the Via Maris. It's the, the Way of the Sea. And this was a primary traveling route for all these goods and people that were traveling through. And so Jesus sets himself up in the midst of this traveling route. Now, this area up here by Capernaum, Zebulun and Naphtali, this is, this is like the edge of the Jewish uh, country. This area was heavily overrun with Romans. There were many Gentiles. Many of the Jews in the south considered this whole northern section. They just like, this is way too impure, man. All these Gentiles running around, people intermarrying. That's just a bad place. You don't want to be there. And they kind of forsook it. They kind of felt like that was kind of a cursed place to be. Jesus sets up his base of operations in Capernaum. And there is a reason why he does this. Because it is promised in the scriptures. Look at verse 14. Have you noticed that Matthew continually points out that this is to fulfill what was written? Jesus is the fulfillment of the prophecies made about the Messiah. And point by point by point, he just keeps going through the beginning of his gospel, pointing out and showing that indeed he's the fulfillment. Look at verse 14. He says this was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah, the prophet. And now he's going to quote for the second time. Isaiah chapter nine, he says the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light and those who were sitting in the land and shadow of death upon them, a light dawned. You see, this prophecy that Isaiah made this is about 700 years prior to the coming of Jesus. It was prophesied that. They, these people who sat in great darkness, spiritual darkness, depravity, depression, they are going to see a marvelous light. Now, there's something going on here that I need to bring to your attention. The Jewish people would be very familiar with Isaiah chapter nine. So much so, like, let me give you an example. If I said this, for God so loved the world, do you know what comes next? Really? No one here. I, uh, we got a few people you, for God so loved the world. And like, I know, I know that one. That's the one I know. Yes. I got. Who what? That he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Yes, I have got that Bible verse. When you say for God so loved the world, I know automatically what comes next. When they would read the first part of Isaiah nine, the Jewish people automatically knew what came next. In fact, you probably are more familiar with it than you give yourself credit to. Because right after this prophecy in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, the following verses in there actually talk about who this one is. It says that this one, speaking of the Messiah, he's going to break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders. He's the one who's going to take the rod of oppressors. He's going to remove it. And it says in verse 6, and I know some of you put this on your Christmas card. Let me give you the context in which it's found. It's found in the context of Isaiah chapter nine for a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us and the government will rest on his shoulders and his name will be called wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal father, prince of peace. And there'll be no end to the increase of his government or of peace and the throne of David and over his kingdom. And he's going to establish justice and uphold it. And his kingdom will have no end. It is forever. You see. Isaiah chapter nine shows these people that this prophecy about this one who is great light coming to the people in darkness 
is the fulfillment of the messianic prophecies. And so that's what he's saying here. Jesus is the light of the world. He's the Messiah. And he comes to the people who are living in great darkness. They are spiritually oppressed. They're confused. They live in blindness of mind and heart. They suffer from despondency and delusion. These are the people that Jesus comes to. And how did Jesus bring light to the people that lived in such great darkness? Did he just stand there and people could just see? No, if you want any clue on that, just jump down to verse 23 in chapter 4. What was he doing while he's in Galilee? Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. He was teaching. He was proclaiming the good news concerning himself. And he was doing miracles to authenticate that indeed he is the promised one, that his message can be trusted. And friends, that is the mission of Christ to bring light, his light into the darkness. And Jesus begins his public ministry doing just that. And this is what I want you to know today. His mission still continues. This book, this gospel of Matthew served as a training manual for the early disciples. It would show them that indeed Jesus is the Messiah, the one true God. It, he would, you would see what does it mean to follow him? You would learn both by example, seeing how Jesus interacted with his disciples, his key leaders, but also listening to the discourses that are recorded in this book. And it was, has a purpose. Do you know what the purpose of the Gospel of Matthew is? It is for all of those who have come to Christ To be in a position to go to the nations to make disciples of all of them. That is the purpose. In fact, remember how the book ends? Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 through 20. What does it say? 18 through 20. He says, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Okay, I have all authority. And then he says what? Go make disciples of all the nations. You who have come to me, you who believe in me, I want you to go. I don't want you to sit there. I don't want you to have develop a hard heart where you don't care about the lost people. I want you to go and I want you to make disciples of all the nations. And he says, I want you to baptize in the name of the Father, Son and the Holy Spirit. Once again, you see the triunity of God. And he says, this is what I want you to do. I want you to teach them to observe all that I commanded you. And guess what? I know this is fearful. I know that this will go against anything that you want to do. There's a lot of inertia for you to stay. He says, you don't need to be afraid. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. It's kind of like our banner. It says what? Come to me. That is the great invitation of the gospel to come to him. And as we come to him, his spirit actually takes up residency in our life. The light of Christ actually starts being resonated from our life. And we are to what? Go make disciples of all the nations. And right at the heart in the center is the cross. The cross of Christ.